All right, good morning. Did everybody get that's here get a handout last week? Because I got a number of them extra. I got I got four of them actually. Tell you what, would you pass that back to Andy and just have them back there if anybody else needs one or comes in and needs one. <coughs> Excuse me. Of course, we're in Revelation chapter 2. We uh, started last week looking at the church, the letter to the church from the Lord Jesus to the letter, the church at Pergamos. Get that out. Uh, Anyway, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer and then we'll just kind of jump back in here uh, this morning in the middle of this particular section here since uh, we we read the, the, the letter last week. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, this morning as we uh, look at your word, I pray that you'd help us, uh, help us to have a better appreciation for you, and um, Lord, uh, to understand uh, properly this passage and what you're conveying here to the church at Pergamos, but also uh, to us individually, us as a church, and then of course just generically to your churches across the board. And we ask that uh, you would help us all to uh, strive to be faithful to you in every respect. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and for his sake we pray, amen. All right, in this letter, uh, of course, again, the letter from the Lord Jesus to the church, literal church that existed there in the city of Pergamos during that first century, And for some time after that, uh, I would imagine, we don't know exactly how long, but a church that existed there, like the other six churches uh, here that are talked about in the book of Revelation, and uh, like most of these churches, this portion here in Revelation is what we know about this church. Uh, With a couple exceptions, uh, there's not much known about these churches other than what is contained here Um, in these seven letters. And so, again, remember the city of Pergamos was a a wicked city, all right? I mean, very idolatrous, a lot of, of course, uh, and and anytime there's idolatry, by the way, there's also always immorality. You see that they uh, consistently go together. Um, And so, a wicked city. In fact, Interestingly enough, in this letter, the Lord Jesus makes certain references about this city, again, that seem to highlight the wickedness of this city. In verse 12, or verse 13, excuse me, he says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. In other words, I know where you live, even where Satan's seat is. I mean, that's an interesting thing to think about, that the Lord... uh, says that this place that they live, that they live, this church lived, uh, is, he, he says, that's where Satan's seat is. And the word seat literally is a word translated throne in other places. It's interesting that in uh, the book of Revelation, it's as far as I can tell, I guess I have to I put that caveat on it, um, the word is always translated seat unless... It's talking about uh, something in heaven, and then it's thrown, but it's the same word. Um, but interesting how that is. Anyway, in other places, the New Testament, it's thrown as well. But 
Uh, here in, in Revelation, it seems to consistently be translated seat unless it is referring to something in heaven. So uh, that's, that's kind of, and I think, I think there's a number of times that the KJV translators do things like that just to kind of separate ideas, if you want to say. And so, uh, uh, anyway, that's, that's said here. But where Satan's seat, or literally you could say throne, is. I mean, so that's, a, that's an interesting thing. I mean, is it possible to say this, that Pergamos was, you know, Satan's capital here on the earth? Uh, you know, obviously it was a wicked city, and I think that's the point that's being highlighted here. A lot of people associate this with the idea that this city was particularly given over. Of course, a lot of different uh, false gods worshipped here, but uh, the, um, what's called the imperial cult or the worship of Caesar really had a strong hold in this city as well. A lot of people think that's why this particular phrase is used here of this, but um, he says, where Satan's seat is and that, and that thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you, then again, notice this other phrase, where Satan dwelleth. So, uh, alive and well there. He's at home there. I, I, that's the idea of that phrase. I mean, he, he's at home there. Uh, interestingly enough, I guess you could argue there are places where Satan wouldn't feel at home. And there's places where Satan shouldn't feel at home, by the way. Uh, but here he felt quite at home, all right? And, and again, this is a, so just the wickedness of the city. And the whole point is, uh, you know, this is the description the Lord gives of the place that this church lived and had to labor for him. And not only was it this wicked place, but he mentions about this martyr, Antipas, who was slain among you. Um, so obviously it was a place where they were persecuted as well. And at least one example here of somebody being martyred for his faith uh, but he says, even in the midst of that, as he commends the church here, let me just uh, uh, move on here. As he commends the church, he says uh, that they had done some good things, all right? He says in verse uh, 12 that he, he's the one that was sharp with the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, all right? So their works. And then he says that even though they're living in this place, that they haven't denied his faith. They've kept faith in Christ, and even in those days where an Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwellest. All right, so uh, their, their deeds, they, they were commended by the Lord for their works, their dwelling in the midst of this city of adversity. Uh, they, they faced not only spiritual danger, but physical danger here, obviously. And in spite of that, they had remained faithful to uh, to the Lord. They've held his name and his faith, but he does point out some things that are wrong with them. And uh, I was going to mention this earlier, and I guess I'll stop here and just do this for a second. The word sword that's used here, this uh, uh, struck me just in reviewing this, this passage for this morning, but the, in verse 12, Christ describes himself as the one that has the sharp sword with two edges. Um, in the New Testament, there's two different words translated sword. One is the, the more typical word by far, 
and it refers to a, a, a sword, but typically a short instrument. In fact, sometimes it could be used in the sense of a, a dagger or something like that, but a short instrument. And then this particular word has to do with a very broad and long sword. It's a very uh, big instrument here, and it's only used seven times in the New Testament. Six times are here in the book of Revelation, and uh, five of those definitely are referring to the Lord Jesus and this particular sword, the sword that he says, like in Revelation chapter 19, it says, this sword goeth out of his mouth. Um, and then uh, the only other time outside the book of Revelation, this particular sword is referred to is in Luke chapter 2, where it's talking about uh, Mary and that a soul, a sword would pierce her soul. Uh, interesting there, but... Um, Again, this is, a, this is a different kind of sword, different, different instrument here. Um, in fact, sometimes this sword, it was so big, it's referred to in, uh, in some places, not necessarily in the Bible, but some places referred to as a javelin or a spear. It's very, again, a very big instrument. In fact, the Thracians are the ones that particularly use this, uh, this sword, and it, from what I've read, it, they would wear it over their right shoulder, and it would have to be pulled out, and I guess the, the sheath would flip up, whatever, but it had to be used with two hands, and so on. It was big, not a, not a single-handed type sword. But anyway, this sword goes out of the Lord Jesus' mouth, all right, which again directly refers to the Word of God and what He, I mean, he, all He has to do is speak, of course, and so on. But... Uh, that's the sword identified with, with the Lord here. And then he talks again about their, their situation, where they were. And then he commends them for these things. And then, I want to get into this because this is where we didn't quite finish on this part next last week, but the condemnation that the Lord delivers to this church. All right, in verses 14 and 15 particularly, he says, but I have a few things against thee. In fact, let me try to catch up here. He says, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them there, thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, uh, basically two different accusations that perhaps could go somewhat together but might be completely different uh, here in these verses, but the exact charge or, or, uh, is the same, all right, but the, uh, the things that he's talking about of what's being held to uh, perhaps are different. Um, but he says, his, if you want to say his sentence that he, he levels against them here is, notice, he says, I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block. And then down in verse 15, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, the interesting thing here is, 
He's not saying that these things were being practiced in the church and that the church was teaching these things. But he says, in fact, what he says that he has against them is that they had in their midst those that held to these two different things. All right? In other words, again, he's not saying that the church is practicing these things. He's not saying that the church was off in this air, but he's basically saying that the church was tolerating some in their midst that held to these things. That's why last week when we introduced this lesson, we said that we call this the compromising church, all right? In other words, what you see here is that this church was tolerating some in their midst having false doctrine. That's, that's what Christ is commanding, that, that he's condemning here, that they, had, they were tolerating some who had false doctrine. Again, uh, obviously the leader... Uh, the leadership of the church wasn't doing that, and probably most in the church weren't. But he said that they were tolerating some that did. And, you know, as we started mentioning, we never really got into the specifics of all this, but as we started mentioning last week, I mean, that's a big, that's a big thing in the day in which we live in our culture, you know, toleration. Everybody should be tolerant and so on. Now, obviously, there's things in life that you have to tolerate, okay? I mean, we can't change everything, you know, around us and, and all that kind of stuff. But the Lord, I mean, what the, what the New Testament teaches that the Lord expects from His churches is that His churches are not tolerant of error. That's, that's very, very clear in the Word of God, and um, that we're not tolerant of error. Again, that doesn't... Uh, and when you think of the idea of toleration in our society, by the way, toleration is mixed with the idea of love. Um, in other words, those that are intolerant of certain ideas, if you want to say, are always seem to be labeled as haters. Have you noticed that? I mean, that's, that's, but that's not necessarily the case, obviously. All right? And God's people should stand against what is wrong. That's very clear. We should stand against what is wrong. Now, we should do it with a Christ-like attitude and spirit, but... We should not be accepting that which is wrong because our allegiance should be to the Lord, all right? So there's, there's, uh, there's conflict there, okay, with what our society, and by the way, that's the world, isn't it? I mean, that's the world. And, and who is the prince of this world? Who's the, you know, the prince of the power of this air, the god of this world? And those are all three designations that the Lord gives to the adversary, to Satan, all right? But that's, that's the line that he wants to push. And by the way, those that are pushing for toleration in our culture, they're not satisfied with toleration, by the way. They're not satisfied until there's a full-blown acceptance 
of what they're starting out saying they want toler tolerance for. Uh, I mean, that's, that's always the way it is. That's how evil works, of course, in, in everything. But uh, the condemnation that the Lord Jesus gives to this church is that they had, they, and, and you, could, you could word it this way, they were allowing in their midst those that held to some wrong doctrine. And again, it's not even saying that those people personally practice certain things. It just says they held to doctrine. By the way, what is doctrine? Do and, and the particular word translated uh, doctrine here is, is, this is common in the New Testament, that uh, there's a couple different words. Sometimes, and this word can, can have the emphasis of like the act of teaching. Somebody is 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 teaching, um, but most of the time it has the emphasis of the the idea of what is taught, the body of what is taught. In other words, the 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 ideas, the the I keep wanting to say the word truth, sometimes it's not truth, but um, the the doctrine, that's what that's where we get that idea of doctrine. All right, it's the body of what is taught. Um, it's for, for us, sound doctrine is Bible teaching, all right? That's, that's what doctrine is. But everything has a doctrine to it. Everything that has, you know, every idea is a doctrine in a sense, okay? might not be right doctrine, but it, it has teaching that goes along with it. Now, uh, when you think about the specifics of this, again, again uh, the Lord Jesus is saying to this church, what he has against them is not that the church was, was standing for something that was wrong, but they were simply tolerating some in their midst who held to wrong ideas, to false doctrine. And um, when, you, when you, you think about this in, in the uh, Bible, there's the principle of leaven, right? Everybody's familiar with that, all right? Um, and I, I have some references there in the handout, but I'm not necessarily going to uh, take time to go to those. But um, leaven, I mean, you know, the Lord Jesus in several of his parables, and so he talks about how, uh, you know, a little bit of leaven was put into something. It was, in fact, sometimes the word is used hid. Leaven was hid in something until the whole was leavened, all right? And, and uh, leaven has the idea of something that permeates, all right? It, it spreads itself. It, it's not containable. It, it, it just permeates until everything is affected by it. And uh, Jesus warned about the leaven of the Pharisees. And in particular instances, he, he specified that he was talking about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and so on. So that's a leaven. I mean, that idea of leaven, again, is just something that represents something that's wrong, that's in the midst of something that might be good, but it's going to spread. In 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, excuse me, chapter 5, that passage where the Apostle Paul uh, addresses the situation of immorality there in the church at Corinth, he uses that principle. He quotes that in verses 6 through 8 about the idea of, don't you realize, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, all right? In other words, that's why Jesus says that things have to be dealt with, because if not, they spread. That's just the nature of it. And so Jesus is saying to this church, 
He doesn't use the word leaven here, but I'm going to, for sake of just illustrating that, that's what he's saying to this church, is the church wasn't wrong in its, in its belief, but there was some leaven in the church that if it wasn't taken care of, it was going to spread and corrupt the church. In fact, by the way, just as a spoiler alert, if you want to say, when you get to the next letter to the next church, Thyatira, that's basically the problem, is corruption had spread. Because, and, and that's what happens. If, if, if compromise is allowed in one thing, it spreads. It always does. And so the Lord expects His churches to hold the line where He draws the line. And again, there's, there's instance of this throughout the Scriptures, but uh, uh, think about, um, again, that, that illustration there in, in 1 Corinthians with the immorality that existed in the church. In fact, the church was bat- basically boasting that they were tolerant. That was, you know, and Paul was... He was condemning them for that attitude. Instead of being tolerant, they should have addressed it, is what he said. And that's what the Lord expects. All right, so when you think about these two different doctrines that Jesus uh, points out that were being tolerated by some in the church at Pergamos, all right, uh, and I have some quotations in here. Uh, in the handout that I, that I gave you, and, and uh, by putting those in there, I'm not necessarily saying that I, I agree 100% with those things, but you have the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Some think that they go together, okay? And maybe they do. Uh, I'm, I'm not, not sure. I'm not certain that anybody can say at this point 100% because the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is just referred to very little in the Bible pretty much here in the book of Revelation. And uh, so it's, it's, it's hard to be exactly definitive on that. Now, the doctrine of Balaam is pretty easy because it's spelled out what it is, number one, here in the text. As, and also we can go back to the Old Testament and look at the example of it. Uh, but you remember there in the book of Numbers, uh, the Israelites are there on uh, outside, if you want to say, the borders of Moab. And... Uh, Balak, the king of Moab, sent for Balaam, trying to keep these names straight, sometimes can be a challenge here, sent for Balaam, who, not everywhere he's mentioned, but like in the book of Joshua, and I got that reference in here somewhere, in the book of Joshua, I think it's in chapter 9, he's specifically called a soothsayer, all right? Now, let me just say, uh, well, number one, I don't believe he was a prophet of God, all right? He had some kind of spiritualism about him, obviously, and God did speak to him. And in this particular instance, God used him. And his, the utterances, okay, that are recorded, that he spoke from God, in, that are recorded in the book of Numbers, are prophetic in the sense of, I mean, they're looked at later in Scripture. I mean, God used those, okay? But what I'm saying is, in spite of all that, God used that, yes, but this is not, he's not an example of a man of God, okay? That's what I'm getting at. Because I believe his motivation was money, all right? And that's the whole reason he went to Balak, all right? I mean, because, you know, 
he argued, and you know, God told him not to go. And uh, on the third time, you know, he's okay, go, but you're only going to say what. And I think the point is, God only physically allowed him to say certain things. You know, he probably intended to curse the people for Balaam so he could get the reward, but. Uh, God didn't allow that to come out of his mouth. Instead, God put other words in his mouth. I mean, it's a whole, it's a very interesting scenario, the whole thing. And keep in mind as well, God used a donkey to speak in that same story, that same scenario, okay? So, uh, I mean, did the, did the donkey literally speak? Yes. Uh, is that, that's obviously not normal, okay? Uh, that doesn't give credence for believing in Mr. Ed, the talking horse, and all that. But, uh, I mean, in that instance, God did that, okay? But again, I think that kind of just underscores the, the irregularity of this whole scenario with Balaam and Balak and Israel and all that, all right? Now, when you're reading in those passages back there in Numbers, particularly like chapters 22 through 25 in the book of Numbers, with that, that story of Balaam, the specific doctrine of Balaam that's referred to here in the book of Revelation isn't spelled out there. It's not till later in the book of Numbers it's referred to, I believe it's in chapter 31, and uh, it's referred to as, okay, yeah, this happened because Balaam had counseled, that's the word that's used there, Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. And the whole point is, according to verse 14, of Revelation chapter 2 is that Balaam taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. All right? Um, and, and the idea is Balaam came to the point realizing, okay, you're not going to be able to curse God's people because he's blessing them and they're in his favor right now at that particular point. So Balak, Balaam counseled Balak, if you can get the children of Israel to sin, God's going to curse them. He's going to deal with them. And you won't have to worry about it. I mean, that, that, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing, summarizing, but that's, that's the gist of what he's saying. And in Numbers 25, it talks about, you remember the instance there where it talks about how that one of the Israelite men had brought a Midianite woman into his tent, and they were committing fornication. And Phinehas, who would be Aaron's grandson, all right, um, he was in line to, he would become after that, um, the high priest after his dad, Eliezer, Aaron's son, passed away. Phinehas took his place. But at this point, he wasn't the high priest. But Phinehas ran in, took a javelin, and killed them. You remember that? And it said that it stopped the plague. There was a plague already spreading. In other words, God was already judging the people because of what was going on. And these were probably not the only two people involved in that. I mean, there were probably others and so on. But Phinehas, he saw the importance, and it's interesting to me. In fact, I, I, have it, I think I have it referenced here in the handout, but maybe... Uh, Maybe I didn't, but if you go back there, in fact, let, go back there for just a second. Numbers chapter 25, book of Numbers chapter 25. 
All right, if, if we... Well, let me, let me begin reading. Let me read the whole chapter. It's not real long. And Israel bowed in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Now, this is in the narrative of the book of Numbers here. This is right on the heels of the story about Balaam, all right, Balak and Balaam. And then it says that they, they began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. Now, by the way, just stop for a second and think. What was the whole thing with, or at least part of the whole thing, with this? Did God, had God not commanded the children of Israel to not intermingle with the heathen nations around them, right? Now, by the way... The point of that was a spiritual point, not a physical point. Some people use that and, uh, you know, to, to teach against like interracial marriage today and so on. All right. Now, I, I'm not going to get into all of that right now, but I don't believe that's what the Bible's forbidding that in our modern context. Okay. It's the idea with Israel and the fact that they were not to intermingle, which would involve marrying. Uh, in the nations around them was a spiritual one to keep them spiritually separated from the nations around them. That was the point. And by the way, many of the laws that God gave to the nation of Israel in, that were incorporated in the Mosaic law for that, were for that very purpose, just because they were to be a separate people from the nations around them. They were to be a if you could put it in this term, a lighthouse in the dark world around them. In fact, numerous times in the Old Testament, God says that His purpose with the nation of Israel was for them to be a witness in the world around them. And uh, so, again, keep all that in mind. As you come here to Numbers 25, the point of this... Now, let me, let me just stop for a second again. Sorry, rabbit trails. But... Some might argue, okay, in fact, there's several examples of this in Matthew 1 in the lineage of the Lord Jesus, all right? There's some foreign women in there. Well, but the point being is those women converted and became part of Israel. They weren't continuing in their foreign idolatrous lifestyle, okay? Um, they, they turned to God, and by the way, anybody, even in that Old Testament context, any individual that would have turned to God would have been accepted. Not just, they, they didn't have to be a direct descendant of Abraham for that to be the case. They were incorporated in as long as they repented and turned to God in faith. All right, Ruth is an example of that. What about Rahab? Interestingly, she's still referred in the New Testament called Rahab the harlot. She wasn't a harlot anymore, but you realize she was the was it grandmother or great-grandmother of David, King David. I mean, the point being is these are examples of those that were in the heathen nations who had turned to God and basically, you could say, assimilated into Israel in, in their practice and so on. I believe they, they, they worshiped God and, and so on, all right? Um, even in David's day, when he was king, there were numerous foreigners that became part of Israel. <laughs> One example of this uh, is the man that David had killed, Uriah. He's what? 
Uriah the Hittite. The Hittites were one of the five nations that the Israelites were told to do away with. Obviously, Uriah, I mean, obviously Israel didn't obey completely God's command back then. And the point is, but Uriah was one that came to, came to you know, if you want to say was converted and came to God. All right, there were numerous, numerous examples of that. All right, so I just thought it was important to get that in there because the whole point, it's not that because they're foreign, you know, because they're not Israel in, in the sense of a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing is why this is important. All right, and Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab, and they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. All right, so they got involved with females, and uh, if there were unmarried males in the midst this morning, which there's not right now, we'd have to issue the warning, watch out, women can get you in trouble, all right? Anyway, women can be a blessing too. Anyway, I better put that in there. Uh, but they called the people under the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. So you see, these Israelites intermingled and became involved immorality-wise, and that also then became connected with idolatry, right? Idol worship and so on. That's what's happening here. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So they, they went off in some wickedness, and what was the result of that? God began to judge them, all right, because they were disobeying God, all right? Um, and the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay every one his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. And behold, notice the wording here. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren, notice that, brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now these are the people that were they were weeping because they were grieved as to what was happening. Okay? But notice the way this is worded, this particular instance, all of these people saw what was going on in this instance. They saw this. Even Moses. Right? Verse 7, And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he didn't just continue to sit there and weep. Notice, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand and went in after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand uh, and then it, the rest of it, the Lord pronounces a blessing on Phinehas for what he did. Now, my point that I, I wanted to go to this passage for is, okay, Phinehas or Phineas, however you want to say his name, but by the pronunciation here, it's Phinehas, but um, 
he wasn't the only one that realized what was going on. But he's the one that took action to stop it. And he's the one the Lord pronounced a blessing on. He, didn't, he wasn't content just to sit and weep before the Lord. He took action to stop it. And the Lord blessed him in that. Moses didn't even take action to stop it in this exact instance. I mean, it's, to me, what, and, and it says that the congregation had seen them. So it's like everybody else was allowing it to go on except for Phinehas. He's the one that rose up to stop it. And then notice it says after he did what he did, it says the plague was stayed. My point being, okay, what is the Lord telling the church in Pergamos? That they were allowing some in their midst to tolerate, they were tolerating wrong doctrine that was being held by some in their midst. And he addresses it as if it's very serious, which it is. And he tells them, it's interesting that in his his uh, correction, going back to Revelation chapter 2, in the correction needed, verse 16a, he basically only says one word. Repent. Now, this is one of those instances where repentance, obviously repentance is, an, is a heart attitude. But, True repentance does have tangible results, if you want to, if I can say it that way. I've heard it said, you know, repentance is a change of mind or heart that results in change of action. That's fair to say as well. All right, but the point being is the Lord only He only simply says here, repent. All right, so I, I think that you can say that He's expecting that with that change of heart here, something's going to be done. And, and in the case using, again, Phinehas and Israel and all that as an example, all right, he put a stop to what Balaam taught. You see that? And that's what the Lord is expecting, whether it's the angel of the church at Pergamos to do, or, you know, I mean, the congregation to do is to put a stop to those holding the doctrine of Balaam. Because... Again, if it's not stopped, it's 11. So it does continue to grow. So it must be brought to a stop, is what he's saying. He says, uh, I mean, and you think about this, all right? How many warnings, and, and I don't have time to this, but on page four of your handout, letter C, sort of toward the middle of the page there, it has the, the heading subtlety. I mean, you think about this. One of Satan's tactics includes persecution from without. That's one, one way he opposes the Lord's work. But another very clear way that he opposes the Lord's work that's seen clearly in the New Testament is through infiltration to, to bring in 
false doctrine, false heritage. I mean, think the book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation here. Uh, Jude says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Basically, Jude says, I had every intention to sit down and write about the common salvation. But he says, it was needful for me. And by the way, that's an example of inspiration. God moved him in such a way that what he wrote, he admits, wasn't even what he intended to start out what he intended to write. Instead, he writes something else that has to do with them earnestly contending for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. And then verse 4 gives the why of that. Why was that needed? For there are certain men crept in unawares. In other words, there are some that have crept into the midst unknown to everybody else. And these certain ones, it says, talks about their, their, their ordained to condemnation, but says they are turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, which is just debauchery, immoral debauchery. They're turning God's grace into lasciviousness. In other words, using God's grace for an excuse to do what they want to do. That is very common in Christianity today. Very common. All right? And, and he says, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I think that the emphasis here in denying this is the, the idea of denying the Lordship of Christ. Not denying and saying, you know, we hate Jesus. We, we don't want, you know, that's not the idea. But denying His Lordship and the fact that they are to be submitted to Him. And... and These are things that you see common in Christianity today that, you know, Jesus that's preached often is just, I mean, he's just everybody's buddy. He's not the Lord who demands certain things of people. Now, he is a friend, obviously. He's a friend of sinners. Even the Bible uses that terminology of him. I mean, but but the point being is we we can get off in our, our view of him by wrongly emphasizing certain things. And again, this church at Pergamos, they were tolerating certain wrong ideas, wrong doctrines in their midst. And I got to stop because time's out, but it needed to be stopped is what the Lord is saying. Repent. And basically the remedy is to separate those, all right? Uh, That involves a clear teaching of truth, clear reproof of error, and a clear separation from what's wrong. Um, And he talks about a consequence if that's unheeded. In verse 16, he says, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That's an interesting thing. He says, I'll come unto thee, singular, and fight against them. It's just an interesting way this is, with the sword of my mouth, that sword that we were talking about, that description. He's going to use that to destroy them. Now, i got to stop because of time, all right? But 
you see this. He talks about a quick appearing and spiritual war here. Uh, and then, of course, he issues a challenge to hear and the blessing pronounced to overcomers here. Uh, and there's some blessed things there, but we don't have time to look at it because we're out of time. But um, the idea of compromise in a church is very, very important. It's a serious thing, according to the Bible. Thank you, Lord, for your word and help us to love you as we ought. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.